Good evening. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Ruth chapter 1. If you're not super familiar with your Bibles, Ruth comes right after the book of Judges. It's a little tiny book. You might kind of get lost in between Ruth, I mean between Judges and 1 Samuel. So, and we're going to be in the first chapter of Ruth. If you're not super familiar with the Bible and you don't know how to find the first chapter, that's the big number. And as we talk about verses, those are going to be the little numbers. There was a day when I had no idea how to read my Bible, so a little help there. We're going to be in verses 16 and 17 this evening. Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I love the book of Ruth. It has several different climax points. And the verses that we're going to be in tonight are one of those climax points. So let's go ahead and read verses 16 and 17, and then we'll dive into the story. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more, also, if anything but death parts me from you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the book of Ruth. I ask that you would use your word tonight by the power of your spirit to shape our hearts, to mold our affections for you, and to have a deeper understanding of the gospel that saves us. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So the verses that we just read, they're kind of like the climax of the first chapter of Ruth, okay? But if you just read these verses in isolation, you may kind of miss the, the punch of the verses, okay? So in order for us to get a better understanding of how powerful these verses really are, I want us to kind of dig into the story of the first chapter of Ruth together. Ruth takes place in a very dark time. It's a dark time for God's people because there was a famine in the land. Not only was there a physical famine, but there was also a spiritual famine. God's people were rebelling in God's sight, and everyone was doing what they thought was right in their own eyes. Every now and then, during this time, God would raise up this person called a judge, and the judge would lead God's people to repentance. But the repentance was always short-lived, and even when it was not short-lived, it just seemed like it was really incomplete. And because of the sin of God's people, God sent them a physical famine. As he often does, he tries to break us to show us our desperate need for him to lead us back home to him. It's, it's kind of hard for modern Americans to understand. We just read there was a famine in the land, and we just kind of glaze over that detail because we have so much food. We don't really understand what it's like for people to go without food, but a famine in the land is a disaster. There's no food. Everyone is hungry. Bodies begin to wither. People begin to get desperate. Mothers wonder how they're going to feed their children. And when desperation sets in, 
people begin to do really hard things. Desperate times call for desperate measures. During this time, some of God's people got so desperate that they decided to flee God's land, the promised land that God had given his people. And so among the people that began to flee the land of Israel was a family. And this family was more important than anyone could know, more important than they even themselves knew. There was a husband and a father. His name was Elimelech. And there was a wife, Naomi, and they had two sons. And this family flees Israel to go to Moab. You may not know about ancient Near Eastern cities and, you know, all this stuff, but Moab was a land outside of Israel that was populated largely by the enemies of God's people. If you read your Old Testament, you see time and time again the Moabites and the Israelites are always just clashing. So the family is now living in an unclean land amongst an unclean people, foreshadowing the exile to come. But at least there's food. Soon, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. Now Naomi is a widow in a foreign land with a foreign people. How is a widow supposed to care for her family? Well, she has two sons. That's kind of something going for her, right? It's not, it could be worse. It seems like her, her safety net is a little bit in disrepair, but it's not totally torn in two. It seems as if although things are bad, man, at least the hand of the Lord seems to be still resting gently upon her. And then her sons die. And so now we have three widows. We have a mother and her two Moabite daughters-in-law. To most Jews of that time, this would have been a, a very sorry sight indeed. Three widows. Between themselves, they could likely not procure a living wage. They couldn't procure the sustenance that they would need to survive. Can you guys see how, how terrible this story is? I wonder how Naomi felt. A foreign, in a foreign land, alone, with a foreign people, dead husbands, dead sons, no one and nothing. Just years and years of suffering behind her that are sagging her shoulders down to the ground. But then it seems like there's a faint glimmer of hope. While she's working in the field, she hears, man, there's food back in Bethlehem. If nothing else, Naomi can go back to her land where at least she'll be with her people. And so Naomi goes to her daughters-in-law, likely with tears in her eyes, maybe with a trembling voice, and she tells them that she's going to be leaving. She's going to be going back to Israel. She might have said something like this, Orpah, Ruth, I love you both very much. May Yahweh bless you both for the kindness that you've shown to me and the way that you've loved my dear sons. I have nothing to offer you. Go to your mothers so that you will be cared for in their house. Perhaps even the Lord will give you husbands in whose houses you can find peace. But the daughters-in-law respond saying, No, Naomi, we love you. We love you and we want to go with you. We will be with you and we will be with your people. We're not going to let you leave us. 
But Naomi responds again, resolute to tell them the truth. And the truth that she tells them is this, even if I had sons today, you would be old women before they would be old enough for you to take them as husbands. No, my daughters, the Lord's hand is against me. Just go back to your people. I have nothing to offer you. And as the reality of what Naomi says sets in, maybe in an hour, maybe in 10 minutes, maybe in 10 days, maybe in a moment, Orpah realizes how true it is. Orpah realizes that there's nothing to be gained in going with Naomi to Israel. So, tearfully, she returns to her people, and she returns to her land. But here's the climax of the story, verses 16 and 17. We'll read them again. But Ruth said, so Orpah has turned back, but Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord do so to me, and much more, if anything but death parts me from you. This story is really incredible, right? I want us to understand what's happening here. I think the Lord has a couple of really incredible things to show us from just these two verses and the background text before it. But in order to do that, I'm going to shift from Moab to right outside of Jerusalem, right after the resurrection of Christ. I'm going to be there for a little bit. You're going to feel like, hey man, what happened to Ruth? I thought we were in Ruth. Yes, I'm going to get back to Ruth. Stick with me, okay? So outside of Jerusalem, shortly after the resurrection, we have a man named Saul, and Saul is going door to door, dragging Christians from their home, persecuting them. Saul is overseeing executions of those who claim the name of Christ. He's about the business of killing and imprisoning Christians. And one day when he's on the road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus shows up, and he thunders onto the scene with glory, knocking Saul on his butt, the rightful place where he should be. And he says, Saul, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? Everyone loves this part of the story, right? It's like, Jesus, he's not persecuting you, he's persecuting your people. Aha, right? Exactly, that's the point. He is, when you persecute God's people, you're really persecuting God. When you persecute Christians, you're really persecuting Christ. And so Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Moms, dads, maybe you guys understand this better than anyone. If someone's mean to your kid, isn't it hard to not, like if another kid's mean to your kid, isn't it hard to not like, to like not be mad at that kid? If someone seeks to do your kid harm, isn't it like they're seeking to do you harm? When your child feels pain, don't you feel that pain in your bones? In the same way, when your kid begins to feel extreme joy, isn't it hard to wipe the smile off your face, right? You are intimately and intricately connected to your people in a really powerful way. And in the same way, God is intimately and intricately connected with his people. 
God identifying with his people and God's people identifying with God is this really comforting doctrine that we have as Christians, right? But it's also a really terrifying prospect for those who would oppose God's children. When we think about people who oppose Christians, who oppose the church, and who oppose Christ, who do we think of? ISIS, right? That's kind of the big thing going on right now. Maybe some lesser known groups that some of you guys who are really tuned into the global scene might have heard of, like Boko Haram in Nigeria. Or maybe you're not even thinking about that. Maybe you're just thinking about like new atheists like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris who are intellectually assaulting the gospel and the church and Christians in Christ. And it's true, all of those peoples and groups are doing serious harm to God's people and they are attacking them and they are attacking the gospel and the savior of that gospel. But God's gonna handle that. When we think about people who oppose God, we usually think about people out there. But brothers and sisters, we should never forget that we ourselves were once enemies of God. We ourselves were God haters. We were at war with God. Romans 8, 7 tells us that we were at war with God. There was enmity between us and God. But maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're like, hey, Sean, like, I'm a Christian. I hear you. But I never, I never really hated God. You know, I was just kind of indifferent to God. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian and you're thinking, wow, this guy's a little over the top. You know, I don't hate God, I just, I'm not really feeling him right now, or I'm not really sure I understand him, I'm not too excited about it, or I'm just, I'm just iffy. I don't hate God. Well, I hear you, but I need you to know that according to God himself, none of his creatures are just indifferent to him. There's no such thing as neutrality for creatures in the world with the Creator. We either love the God of the universe who made us, or we reject Him and are at war with Him. You may not feel like you're at war, but how often have your feelings deceived you? How often have you been wrong about what you thought was right or true or good based off of how you felt? God says, follow me. And what do we say in our sin? No. God told us to obey him. And what did we say to him? No. God told us to glorify him, to delight in him, to find our greatest joy and treasure in him. And we said, no, no, no. God says, love me. And we say, no. Doesn't that sound like rebellion to you? Thank you, amen. Doesn't that sound like someone who's at war with God? If you had a husband and a wife, and the husband was treating the wife like that, or the wife was treating the husband like that, wouldn't you say that it sounded like they, they hated one another more than they loved one another? Praise God for that. Listen, I was in the jungle where people would just talked the whole time you were preaching, so I need more of that. So how does all this connect to Ruth? Y'all were thinking I just left the book of Ruth behind. Naomi understood this reality that I'm talking about right now intuitively. 
She knew that to identify with the people of God was to identify with God himself, to identify with God was to identify with his people, and that there was no such thing as neutral ground. There's no Switzerland in in this war. After urging Orpah to count the cost, do you remember how Naomi urged Orpah and Ruth to count the cost of following her back to Bethlehem? Well, after Naomi urged Orpah to count the cost of following her, Orpah turns away. She turns away, and the text simply says she turned away in sadness. But listen to what Naomi says about Orpah turning away. This is in verse 15. She says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Naomi knew that Orpah was not merely indifferent to God or indifferent to God's people, but that going back to her people was a rejection of God. She knew that to go back to that land with those gods was to go back to those gods. For any non-Christian friends who may be here tonight, I want to ask you guys a question. If you're rejecting Christ, and if you're turning back to other gods, what are they? And why are you doing it? Is it, you th- is it do you think that following Christ will like, get in the way of your worshiping your other gods, like maybe your career? Is your career your god? Is that what you're living for? Maybe it's your carefree lifestyle. You know, the lifestyle that young people of our generation tend to idolize, is it late nights and casual relationships that you think you're going to have to give up when you follow Christ? Maybe it's this really deep, burning, intellectual question that you may have. You know, well, what about the problem of evil? Are you just, are you just not going to turn to Christ and turn to God until you can understand every little aspect of the gospel perfectly? Until you can understand God entirely? I hope not. A God that we can understand is less than us and not really a God at all. All of mankind will either be an Orpah who turned away from God in his offer of grace and from his people, or a Ruth who says, your people will be my people and your, gods will be my, your God will be my God. So this is usually the part in the sermon we're like, okay, we're in, a, we're in a Southern Baptist church. It's a Sunday night. It's the month of evangelism. I'm kind of doing an evangelistic sermon. So, like, let's just go full Southern Baptist, right? This is the part in the sermon where someone says, all right, now, what I want you to do is, like, repent and believe in the gospel. Trust in Christ for salvation. Amen? Amen. We're not going to do that. That's good. We do need to repent, and we do need to trust in Christ. And not just those who don't know Christ. This is part of every Christian's ongoing walk. Constant repentance, constant trusting in Christ. But uh, there's more than that. You see, Naomi told Ruth and Orpah before they went with her to Bethlehem that to follow her was going to cost them dearly. She says, if you follow me, you're going to be giving up your futures. You see, Moabites would likely have not been able to procure husbands in the land of Israel. So they would have been going back with a widow who was too old to procure a husband, likely, and then they would not have been able to procure husbands. And so they just would have been three widows in the land of Israel. 
They would have survived because God is very gracious and he has things in his law for widows to be provided for, but they would have been living on uh, pocket Lenten prayers. And Naomi knew that. She says, listen, if you follow me, there's nothing here for you besides Yahweh. Orpah knew that. Orpah knew that no husband means no family, no family means social stigma, and no family plus social stigma means no support net. Orpah understood the cost of following Naomi. And finally, when she weighed, she knew that the cost was too high. For my non-Christian friends tonight, I'd encourage you to talk to Christian friends around you. They'll tell you the cost of following Christ is high. You have to give up everything. When we make a decision to follow Christ, Sometimes life gets harder, not easier. The Christian gospel isn't a gospel like liars on the television say it is that promises you everything you could ever want and dream and hope for to make you happy. The only thing that's promised to you is that you will suffer with Christ. Jesus told his followers to count the cost of following him. And Naomi told Ruth and Orpah, so I want to urge you, to consider the cost. Are you prepared to be hated by the world? Because you will be. Are you prepared to live the rest of your life on this earth as an exile? Because you certainly will. Now, if we were in a church like so many churches that I spent time in as a young Christian, this would be the part where like, we would have a really cool praise band back here, and I would be like, all right guys, start playing the music. Real low, real soft at first. I would tell the guy back there, hey, you know, it's t- you know, maybe I wouldn't have to say it. Hopefully we would just be in tune, right? Lower the lights. The, chain- the sound of my voice would begin to change, and I would begin to add a lot of really soft and subtle emotion, you know. But that's just stupid men doing stupid things because they don't understand the gospel. Here's the thing. Before anyone makes a decision to follow Christ, they have to know that emotion will not cut it. You cannot follow Christ on an emotional high. It will not last. Emotional highs do not get you through the suffering that Christ promises you in his kingdom. You see, Orpah and Ruth were both very distraught at the prospect of losing Naomi. They were in tears. And they were so distraught and in so many tears, they were like, no, no, don't leave. We're going to go with you if you do go. Both of them had very strong emotions for Naomi and wanted to be with her. But when the time came to count the cost, Orpah turned away because emotions were not enough. In Mark chapter 10, you know the story of the rich young man? He hears about everything going on with Jesus, right? And he gets really excited. He's all in his emotions, and he runs up to Jesus, and he's like, Jesus, tell me what I have to do to receive eternal life. And you guys remember what Jesus tells him? He basically says you have to give up everything. And the rich young man, he weighs it, he counts the cost, and he decides that it's too much. He comes down off of his emotional high, and the text tells us, Mark tells us, that the man turned away in sadness. Just like Orpah, who kissed Naomi and turned away in sadness. 
If you're here tonight and you don't know Christ, right here, right now, I'm telling you the cost of following Christ is this. You have to give up everything. Like Ruth, you must say, Jesus, your people will be my people, and you will be my God. The reason why we're here in this room together tonight as Christians, my brothers and sisters, is because we have said that. We understood that God identifies with his people powerfully, and so when we committed to following Christ, we also committed to following his people and to being with his people and to serving his people. If you don't know Christ, you're more than welcome to return to your gods. I don't really know why you would, though. The funny thing about false gods is that they never serve us. We always end up serving them. But our God, this, this Christian God that we worship, he's a God who comes down and he served us. False gods say, you need to die for me. Christ says, I'm going to die for you, and then you'll die with me. That's not the end of the story, though. We'll get to the end of the story. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Brother and sister Christians, I don't know how often you meditate on the gospel. Sometimes the gospel kind of becomes old hat. It's something that we just move past. But when was the last time you considered the fact that God serves you even while you hated him, while you were at war with him? You were spitting in his face, and yet he came down and he loved you, and he served you, and he laid his life down for you. The, the beautiful end of the gospel is not just that we are called to suffer and that we're called to die with Christ, but also that we will be raised with Christ. The end of the gospel is not just that we don't have to die and go to hell. The end of the gospel is not simply that we get to escape his wrath because we're at war with him. The end of the gospel is that we get to go and be with him. We get to be with him forever. No more pain, no more suffering, no more agony. We're seated at the Father's right hand in heaven for the rest of eternity with Christ Jesus. But in order to reign with him, you have to die with him. And if you haven't done that, there's no better time than tonight. I spoke with a man yesterday who was telling me that he was sharing the gospel with a young lady, and she said, I'll have time when I get older to get right with God. And I'm telling you, that is not true. You could die tonight. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm telling you the truth. No one should wait to cry out to God to be saved from their sins. Don't be like an Orpah or a Judas who kisses and then turns away from Christ. Be like the Ruth who kisses and clings. Brothers and sisters, maybe some of this stuff you're thinking, man, how does this really apply to me? But I, I promise you this applies to you more than anyone because following Christ is a life of constantly turning away from Moab and turning back to Israel. It's a life of clinging to the only light of grace that we have. You know what Naomi and, uh, you know what Ruth and Orpah had available to them? Naomi's love. She was the only light of the gospel that they had in their presence. And Ruth clung to that. 
Brothers and sisters, our life is a life of constantly having to cling to God's grace, day in and day out. So when I tell the non-believer that emotions are not enough to follow Christ, if you've been following Christ longer than a day, brother, you know that's true. Your emotions can't get you through this. Your emotions can't get you through the cancer. Your emotions can't get you through the lost jobs. Your, mothers can't, your emotions can't get you through a child dying or a loss of a house. You need to have something deeper than that. There has to be a deep-seated heart change. And the way that we know that we've had that deep-seated heart change isn't if we made a decision one time a long time ago to walk up an aisle and to say, I'm gonna follow Christ, and then we wrote it down in a Bible. Real assurance is if not only did we do that back then, but we're still doing it right here, right now, today. Do we still love God's people? Are we still identifying with God? Are we still clinging to his grace? That's the only way that we can really know that we are a Ruth and not an Orpah. That's the only way we can know that we haven't been deceived by our emotions and the emotionalism of our culture. Finally, I wanna, I wanna leave you guys lingering. I want us to just linger on God's grace. If you are a blood-bought son or daughter of God here tonight, like Ruth, if you have pledged obedience to Yahweh and to his people, if you have not turned back to the false gods of the world like Orpah, I just want to ask you a simple question. Why? Why not? Everyone here who is a Christian tonight is a Ruth and not an Orpah. If you're here and you're a Christian, you're an Abel, not a Cain. You're an Abraham, not a Lot. You're an Isaac, not an Ishmael. You're a Jacob, not an Esau. You are a Moses, not a Pharaoh. You're a Jeroboam, not a Rehoboam. You're a Peter, not a Judas. Why do you think that is? I mean, Ruth and Orpah likely received the same education or lack thereof in similar houses and similar cultures. They have largely identical experiences, marrying sons from the same family. They experience the same grief, and they receive the same love of God channeled through Naomi. And yet one of them turned back to Moab and rejected grace, and the other one clung to it. When you get to the judgment seat, when you're standing before Christ and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into your reward. At that moment, what is it that you can possibly say where you can say, okay, it was my intellect, you know, I paid more attention in church, or I had a better family, or I had a better education? What is it? What can you say? Well, hopefully you won't say anything. You're just going to fall on your face and you're going to worship God because for some unknown, incomprehensible reason that you will likely never fully understand, he chose to love you and to save you and it had nothing to do with you. Maybe you think it does have something to do with you. There's a verse in Ephesians, it's chapter 2, and it reads like this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not, this is not 
your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Brothers and sisters, there will be no boasters in heaven. God will not allow it. He is a God who is hungry for his own glory. And anyone who stands before him and claims any part of the work of salvation that he has wrought in them is unfit for the kingdom of God. I don't know why you chose Christ and not the world. I don't know why I chose Christ and not the world. But I do know that it didn't have anything to do with you and it didn't have anything to do with me. And it has everything to do with God. So the only right response is for us to glorify God because apart from his sovereign grace, no one says with Ruth, I will follow you. You will be my God and your people will be my people. So let's glorify him right now, even in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We ask that you would use it to cultivate a heart that wants to give you all the glory and all the honor and all the praise that only you rightly deserve for the work that you've done in our hearts. For those who may not know you, I pray that they would cling to you and that they would not turn back to their dead and dumb idols. And for those who do know you, I pray that you would help us today, tomorrow, and every day until you call us home to turn away from our dead and dumb idols that the culture is constantly trying to get us to worship. And that you would help us to cling to you and to follow you even to the last day of our lives. May we follow you even until we're buried, Lord. In your son Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.